0: This podcast is produced by The Prop, a website dedicated to responding to theatre in Sydney with a strong focus on new writing. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded on the 23rd of August, 2018, at Griffin Theatre Company. Lee Lewis, the artistic director of the company, sat down for a chat with Kendall Fever and Brenna Harding, the writer and lead actor, respectively, of Griffin's latest production, The Almighty Sometimes. What follows is a discussion about mental health and theatre, the ways in which the industry accommodates and deals with this issue, as well as reflections from the personal experiences of Lee, Kendall and Brenner. The conversation began with a question about the things that we as artists can choose to do in order to create a better working environment for people struggling with mental health issues.
1: Look, I think a conversation like this is part of how we make it an acknowledged stress in our industry. It is. I think in the past there's been much more of a culture of suffering in silence and in fact burying that information in case you don't keep working. Fear of people finding out, which has compounded issues that people may have had and been suffering with. Uh, So, I think just talking about it and acknowledging that it is a regular workplace hazard, there is emotional stress in the work that we do. And yes, that's what you sign up for and that's what you have to learn to manage in your life. But... Acknowledging that we're doing it in a community of people that understand that is part of making it easier to bear. I was in a I was in a rehearsal room today, and there was a, st- a conversation about uh, a family member had passed away, and the, d- the director had said, "Well, we'll can they make sure that the funeral's in the morning so we can, we don't interfere with tech?" And this was a few years ago. This is about ten years ago that that comment was made. And another actor said, "What was there just no compassion back then?" I'm like, "No, nah, not really." <laughs> And even, even the fact that a young actor said that and thought that was terrible as opposed to, oh yeah, right, I'm now learning, I just have to suck it up and whatever happens, the show must go on. There's a very different conversation that's starting to happen that feels alive and healthy and I'm not saying it's going to solve everything but at least people can talk about it. And we're building a language as a community for how to take care of each other in the work that we want to keep doing.
2: I feel like that really covers it. <laughs> 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 well,
1: no, it's, it's, it is an interesting thing, though. I mean, even the f- our early conversations about working together, it, uh, it came out of a pattern I've started to have, even in auditions, of just saying to people, look, this work might not be the right work for you to be doing now. Two years from now, you might be in exactly the right place to do it, so it's okay to say no. You don't have to take things that might that not feel right at the particular time. If it's too close, don't do it. Uh, absolutely having lived the story can work against your capacity to cope with carrying that story for the three, four, five months that a run can be. So we started the conversation about The Almighty Sometimes with that. If if you're not in a pretty stable place, please say no to this play, which I said to all of the actors who auditioned. And don't say yes just because I say I'd love you to do it. It's really easy to go, oh, yeah, great. And then the next day think, oh, man, can I really do this? Uh, and if you do have that thought, it's okay to, it's okay to step out of a role.
2: Personally, I don't feel pressure to say yes to an e- everything. I've become quite comfortable um, saying no to auditions, to roles, um, mostly because I like to do work that fits with my social values. Um, and so, if something doesn't, I'm I'm less inclined to say no because um, acting fits into a a much larger realm of things within my life and if it's not enhancing what what I believe politically then it's not the kind of work that I, I will be able to bring my best to um, but also want to contribute to um, so within that scheme of things I, I do find it easy to say no um, but I know for a lot of actors that's not necessarily the case um, especially I've been very fortuitous getting quite consistent work, um, and I'm also at university, so it's not, I'm not putting all my pressure on, on my next job, um, but I know for a lot of actors that there, there is a pressure to, s- to say yes to every job, um, because you want the opportunity, and work breeds work, so if you're doing one thing, then you're more likely to get other work, so yeah, I, I think it is something that you know we, ha- we have to be conscious of.
1: It's, it's interesting working in a new writing company, because often writers are writing into some of the big difficulties that we're having, in, us, in our society at the moment, so they're trying to get right into the conflicts that we're living <laughs> and that can be harder, I think. Well, I, I start. Uh, sometimes I think it's harder, but then you go back to some of the classics and the things that they're wrestling around in are just as difficult once you get into it and can be as confronting. I suppose we're just a little bit more ready for it on the surface at Griffin because every play is digging around in the very personal of the present. <laughs> But in theatre specifically, uh, you know, a lot of plays structurally are built on conflict. And as soon as you're playing conflict, your body doesn't necessarily know the difference, does it? Uh, You go home and you're as exhausted as if you've had an argument for six hours. Uh, And how how do you take care of your body and your mind? How do you learn how to do that? And, you know, there are no great handbooks. There really aren't. So, it's about... People, actors talking to each other, directors talking to each other, directors talking to actors about how to do these things, you know. Um, uh, how big is the thing that you're carrying? And and knowing that that shifts over the course of a show too. That's been really interesting to me. Things that seem will seem okay early on can turn out to be really difficult and the other way around. Things that seem difficult at the beginning can actually be the easiest thing to do. But that you've got to be ready for the surprise that words in your body will... Um, wake up yeah. you know it's just I find that fascinating.
2: I think one of the beauties of theatre and dealing with difficult things is you get to sit with it for so long and really unpack it I, in the first week of rehearsals Lee talks about the fact that you never really know <laughs> the project that you've signed up till until you sit in that rehearsal room for the first week and start reading the text and you just have so many moments of oh god oh god this is what we're doing and yeah I think I, I definitely had experience on this play of of feeling the enormity of of the world um but that's also the beauty of it because you get to feel that enormity in those waves and feel it in different places and new places but then you get to sit with that for a while and i kind kind of become wise with those feelings and understand how you can then as lee was saying pass them on to the audience and communicate Communicate them in the in the in the most effective way possible, to allow them to come away feeling like they have been through something or or learnt something from the piece. Um, and yeah, I mean, I still I still learn new things in this play. There's still moments where a pin drops and I'm like, oh didn't put that one together, wow, that one feels <laughs> in this particular place. And also you you have different moods. I, I come into the show and I, I do the show in a different mood to the day before and suddenly it's, it's hitting in all different places. And so you get this it's sort of enormous exercise of empathy um, for these characters and for this situation, um, which you then get to take into your life, which means you've almost lived these extreme experiences of so many different people. Um, it's just a, a real ri- richness, which is one of the gifts of acting, I think. And also thinking of, of friends I know who've experienced similar things and even talking to people post-show, um, having a friend telling me about when I was listing off all of the medications that Anna, Anna's been on, she was like, you said seven, I've been on 17, I counted the other day. And just understanding how much the play speaks to her experience And understanding her more as a person and empathising with her more as a person because I've lived a small fragment of Anna's life every night.
3: And I love that anecdote from Brenna. She said that to me before because um, as I was writing the play and researching it and speaking to psychiatrists... Um, every time I sent the play out, um, one of the things they kept coming back with a big red line through was the number of medications that um, Anna on and they said, this is terrible practice. We would, we would never allow um, polypharmacy of this magnitude. But every young person I was speaking to was saying 14, 16, 18. And, you know, uh, the psychiatrists were asking me to get it down to, to six. So it's just um, it's fascinating the journey that I went on with this plane, it was such a long one, um, was so uh, marked and influenced by the many people that I spoke to, many families I encountered, um, the many psychiatrists that um, uh, so generously gave up their time for me, that um, they're all in there. That's why um, uh, I hope it's... um, It's a very human piece of um, literature. There are so many voices and so many real experiences bubbling under there.
1: For me, I I think there's also that question over time. If we really are going to pull apart that thought about about mental illness having a stigma in our workplace so that we can't talk about it, how do we make it okay? That thought that diagnosis is something, it's it's an identification of a number of symptoms at a given time that goes some way towards pointing towards some condition. And that will change over time. I've got the very great pleasure of working with with a young actor that I worked with when he was still at NIDA. And it's really interesting coming back to him as an actor, as a creative being. He's transformed t- entirely. And knowing that people do change so much, that's a really interesting thing for me and how that... Uh, that, that People, and this is not him at all, but uh, people that had difficulties when they were younger in dealing with certain things get older with ideas. And they manage things differently. And and how do we carry that information about people very carefully? As a director, I might know something about someone from 10 years ago that might not apply at all now. And that's not fair to bring that into a room.
3: Well, one of the easiest ways to go about that is to recognise that um, people are not... um mental illnesses and that's also a journey that sometimes people who have received a diagnosis have to go on there's this really interesting train in psychiatric thought at the moment called narrative therapy which i love because i'm a playwright (laughs) and it becomes this extended metaphor for what i do and what i was trying to do with this play um which is all about um that they're realizing that um Uh, young people, even adults with um, a diagnosis, it's scrambling their identity. And so um, what a number of fantastic psychiatrists are trying to do at the moment is not just um, uh, diagnose and give out medication. Some are even uh, refraining from giving a label entirely. It's um, helping young people to deal with the reality of their suffering on a day-to-day basis, but also to construct an identity that is completely separate from label, which... um, so I you don't play the story of your
1: label. Yeah, exactly. You don't just follow that path, but you actually s- stay with yourself and where you're at. Yeah, absolutely. build yourself from But you have that. these yeah. things that you know okay.
3: that you need to um, deal with and and manage so that in a... Um, and this is just one option of many, and some things that work for... Some people might not work for others, and that's another part of the yep. mental health journey is working out um, what, uh, what you need in a workplace environment and then having the courage to ask for that. Yeah. Um, And
1: then on the employer side, (laughs) going, okay, all right, how do we accommodate that? We want this person. They come with complications, like everybody. How do we we accommodate that complication? And uh, how do we want to do that? I think that's the interesting thing, is that there's a shift in company culture across different industries is saying, no, we we want this. You go back to theatres, it used to be just – it used to be families – and little guilds, and that sort of, thi- and so the strangenesses of people were taken care of. And then, you know, as the money got bigger, as the venues got bigger, as the pressures got bigger, so more and more it was like the show must go on, and y- you know, you suck it up, and that's just the way it is. And we've got we're now in the age of pulling that apart and going, no, actually, it's not okay.
3: I think that one of the main things um, that um, I'll speak for writers as opposed to anyone else because I'm friends with so many of them um, that we all really struggle with is it's kind of um, death by comparison. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, there are so many ways to be a writer. Um, the suffering of the artist um, is an absolute myth but that does not mean that there are not people who suffer for their art. So I personally really, really struggle to write. Um, it breaks me up. I spend a lot of time uh sobbing at the laptop. Um, it's kind of like, like uh for extended periods of time and we were talking weeks, weeks and months, like the only person you have to talk to is yourself and you don't like yourself very much. So it's not like it's not a happy experience for me writing. It's more of a compulsion. Um, but then I have um, other playwriting friends who can get up in the morning, um, go to the, um, uh, go to the writing table and um, uh, hit their goals for that day. And they call them goals and it's incredible and I admire that. So, I just don't think that there's any um, specific way to be an artist. And if we could um, dismantle that um, a little bit, it would be easier for all of us. And that leads back to the original points we were making about... Um, Uh, asking for what you want um that if you uh rather than striving to be something that um you are not um if you can work out what your artistic process is work out how you like to write um then you can start asking for that but i think there's just so much misinformation about it that um a lot of the um, depression and anxiety in writing, particularly, is um, of this idea of what you should do and what you should have achieved by a certain point, and um, the fears around um, certain ages that you that you reach. And there's just um, there's no one journey, there's no one way to to make art. And I just want to wrap us all up in a big hug and go. It's, like it's gonna be okay. Just you do you, which sounds like overly simplistic, but it's um, it's changed my life realizing that realizing that we're all different Mm. there's
1: a a beautiful um uh, i think her name is vilislav zamborska she's a poet um polish poet who won the nobel prize and she was her nobel prize acceptance speech talked about how impossible it is to actually make a a movie about a poet She said because my life is very unexciting i get up in the morning i walk towards my desk i get a cup of tea i sit down at my desk i think i walk away from my desk i go sit on my couch i get up i go write a word then i get another cup of tea uh, and it was just this lovely <laughs> thing about it's, th- and she was describing her process and how uninteresting that process is, and how it's not a good story. And I think a lot of the st- the myths around the suffering creative process are because they're good stories to tell, and they can be represented in dramatic ways, which can be then told as stories on the stage and in film. And that's so th- the boring ones don't get told, because there's nothing to see there except I- a table mm-hmm. and some paper or a computer, and. And this strange still person digging around inside their mind to kind of see what comes out. I mean, yes, there's all sorts of seeing the world and all that sort of stuff, but how do you depict that? So the cr- the suffering becomes a story that can be told.
2: I guess from an actor's perspective, and I'm sure it has similarities with writing, but it's as if that suffering artist doing everything for your work gets put at the highest point of the hierarchy um and deserves the most respect because it's y- you going as far as possibly as possible for your art and therefore you wanting it more um but I think it, it's like Kendall was saying it's it's and it's like like the play is saying we're, we're all human and we all exist in these really different ways and it's important to take care of yourself within that and I personally think that I produce my best work when I am mentally well and when I am rested and when I am physically well and when I feel supported. Other people might be different. They might perform their best work when they're under an enormous amount of pressure but at the end of the day, maybe it's it's not worth it. Um, but that's something that we all have to decide for ourselves. But there definitely, I feel, a pressure to fit that narrative um, and that I'm maybe not working hard enough or don't want it enough if I'm not putting myself through hell to get there. But that's just something that I, I've had to unpick. And a lot of people, a lot of actors around me have also had to unpick. Some successfully, others not so much.
1: There's also a really interesting question around uh, he- heritage of acting, especially with... Um, the 20th century teaching of different methodologies. as well, so Now we've got schools of ways of acting and what can be handed on and what can't. And I'm, I always worry about the tradition of method acting and the pulling on the, on the authentic pain because I even have questions about the, the idea of authentic and how that word gets valued more than other things. I kind of go, we're losing, the, we're losing the tradition of transformative acting where you can Im- imagine something that never happened to you and how do you, wh- how do you create that? Um, and I think that goes into writing as well. I always mm-hmm. worry about um, the pressure on writers to write their own story. I'm like, no, you can actually find a story that's not yours and you can research and work and you can create something that feels authentic to people watching. That's a lot of work, sure, but it doesn't have to be your story. That's not your ticket into an industry. And I think with method acting, I worry a lot. Um, it was, I understand its use in film, where you only have to do something once or twice, but I also... Worry about that really private place, and and dipping into that, the temptation to dip into that. Um, I like to think of actors as professional imaginers. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a, and maybe that's over years of watching friends just not be able to keep going with, constantly dipping into the real to create the fictional. Um, what that does, it wears out valuable memory. In, in certain ways as well, and it damages people sometimes. Some people, that those methodologies were built for by a particular group of people who could manage it. When things get transferred to other people, they might not be able to manage it the same way, and I don't think we're questioning that transmission of methodology enough.
3: One of the reasons that I got into theatre in the first place was because it allowed me to um, use my imagination. Um, and I hope that we don't all um, start underestimating... Um, theatre's role in tapping into um, human empathy. Um, So, um, how important it is for an actor to, as part of their process, to try and work out and try to understand what someone else's experience might be. Um, The responsibility for myself as writer, if I'm writing about something that is not my lived experience, that um, there is is something quite... um, uh, helpful in, um, in someone else learning about that and um, in interrogating that. And then I think um, um, that the flip side of that, of course, is if you are writing about something that you don't have direct experience of, it's to um, uh, develop as much awareness as possible so that you're not um, making the mistake of um, stepping into a trope. So you're actively s- steering against tropes Or you're driving directly into them with the express purpose of um, interrogating the shit out of it.
1: It is funny, though. As an industry, we do attract people with a a heightened capacity for empathy. And then they build all sorts of skills that amplify that capacity over their life and then manage that. But it it is a gift. It's not something that people can just... You can't just step into theatre and be good at it there is a gift involved um, and then the skill to manage that gift over time and it is interesting to, it is lovely to work in an industry filled with people that do feel other humans more. (laughs) That sounds terrible when I say it like that. (laughs) We're not supposed to be feeling quite as much, are we? Um, (laughs) What I am liking though is that we're starting to let people say, oh no, that doesn't work for me. Uh, And I I loved what you were talking about earlier about choosing work according to a congruence with your ethics and a choice to try and construct a working, acting life in that way, Uh, which as an idea you may have had. 10 15 years ago but you wouldn't have said it out loud. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And now I can I can hear that idea out there for other younger actors going, "No, I can actually live a life that is making choices that don't tear me apart." And and I think that's with
3: with young roles across the whole industry, male and female. I for me personally, I've done I've done tried both <laughs> Uh, uh, I've I've been in um, full time work um, while attempting to write plays, and I've been writing plays full time now for um, for two years, and um, I think both are, are completely valid. And there's often a lot of pressure on artists um, to uh, be exclusively. Uh, to work solely and exclusively um, in the arts. And one of the things that um, I'm going to be doing next year is um, getting a uh, getting a part-time job because I've realised over these past couple of years that um, I don't want to get um, so... I mean, money, obviously, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't want to get so um, caught up with myself and my um, laptop that I forget to engage um, with life. And if you look at the history of... Um, of, uh, theatre, um, so many people, the majority have had to do that out of sheer necessity, but it's, um, a lot of people have also done it out of, um, choice, so, um, that's something that I would offer up, that, um, it's not a bad thing to have a day job, um, and there can be many positives attached to it. I think also surrounding yourself with, um, people who, um, love you and are in, um, uh have this wonderful sense of awe that i I feel is warranted in what we do because it is really really difficult and it's an industry in which you don't often get a lot of um pats on the back or just acknowledgement of what um of the sheer determination it takes some time (laughs) to um keep going as it were um i got a um i had a, a couple of months with a therapist at one point because um I was struggling um, with writing. I didn't know if I wanted to do it with my life because it was making me so unhappy and I was struggling to find an access point. Um, and she said to me, this is a wonderful moment where she said to me, um, but Kendall, all these negative voices are in your head. They're totally in your head because she hadn't dealt with that many people in the creative industries before. So I went home and I printed out all my rejection letters and uh, a couple of bad reviews um, uh, wrote down some um, uh, direct quote criticisms I'd had from artistic directors, and I brought them back in. And she went, "Oh shit!" And I was like, "Yes, critical thought manifest. Yeah, they're not <laughs> in my head. They're real people in the world, and yeah. it sucks." And that's one of it's just the realities of uh, uh, working in the arts. It's um, an industry in which um, we are constantly. Um, judged and scrutinised and, um, uh, um, and yeah, and I think that one of the things that I personally have um, that's helped me to deal with that is not just to, um, um, and I'm still doing it, but actively attempt to construct an identity outside of um, the arts, but also to surround myself um, with people who are just... Um, in a really beautiful way are just in awe that you would choose to do something that hard, are pleased for you um, when a play does go up and do just give you that quite literal pat on the back that um, I think we're all uh, endlessly desperate for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got
1: fascinated in the last little bit. There's, there's three, area, three industries that use the word theatre, or, and obviously theatre, but surgery and war. And I find quite a—I find it really interesting reading about uh, mental health in those different fields as well, because there's something about theatre and what that word is, and this the aliveness of it and the risk of that space. And I mean, it seems when I say it out loud, it seems really ridiculous. You kind of go, "It's not life and death what we do," and but then on part of part of what I part of my brain goes, "Actually, it is. It is actually that important to our." culture to our society, this space and it is like it, it, it is akin to theater of war or the op- operating theater. There is life on the line and c- keeping work in that space is difficult and there is a cost and I find some of the language that's coming out of um, uh, hospitals, with surgeons and stresses on surgeons and uh, post-traumatic stress with soldiers. I don't think it's out of left field to be looking at the language coming from those
3: industries. And the solutions are the same, therefore, absolutely the same. It's about... um, It's absolutely about... You can drill it down to self-care. It's uh, it's a very modern idea, actually, that um, mental health is separate from physical health. They're actually completely um, intertwined. So, um, as Anna has to do in the play, as Brenna has to do in real life, sleep, eat, <laughs> um, <you> Exercise. Know, <laughs> exercise. If you are, um, you know, a, um, a scared, vulnerable, workaholic, ambitious writer like myself, it's often about... Um, because you don't have a nine-to-five um, job or don't regularly have a nine-to-five job, it's about ensuring that you carve out time for um, pleasure, which is such a weird thing, but it's... Um, you know things that make you um, make you happy, it's, um, it's so, so important, and we forget it um, really easily mm. there's, there's also an a
2: interesting phenomenon, I guess, in, in the fact that this work doesn't really have sort of a set goals and benchmarks that you reach. You, you don't clock out at five, you don't finish your task list and go home as an actor. You can go over your lines for as long as you possibly want you could do rewrites forever and as a perfectionist which I'm sure a lot of us here I'm I'm assuming Kendall absolutely (laughs) that that assumption (laughs) is correct (laughs) um that I mean that's that's almost an an, an impossible challenge because you can just keep going and and you're setting those limits yourself so I think that one of the biggest self-care strategies that we have to employ is creating those boundaries and those limits for yourself um so that you you do get to clock out and have time to decompress um, because it can be really damaging to go 24 hours and to be thinking about these things um, constantly. And that's actually one of the things that I really love about having a director because um, at school I would go over and over and over again and, and, and rewrite and rewrite and keep myself up and, and sort of kill myself with with getting my work to a perfect state. And then I got on set when I was you know 15 or, or whatever and um, and the director would say after a couple of takes, I'm happy with that. We got it. Great. And I could keep on doing that scene <laughs> forever and ever and ever, <laughs> ad, ad I' like yeah. ad nauseum, because m- my standards are, are you know, a- enormous for myself, impossibly enormous. Um, but to have a director who can see something from the outer and say that serves what it needs to serve for the rest of this, this story takes the burden of weight off my shoulders in that realm of being. So it's, acting has actually become something that's been really beneficial for my perfectionism when i trust my director
3: and he did exactly the same thing for me so i was still tweaking <laughs> in rehearsals at one point Lee goes, kendall stop <laughs> <laughs> like trust it it's um it works it's good and it's just you know uh that's having fantastic people to work with who um recognize the fact that they are probably um uh Deal, statistically likely, they're dealing with um, a lot of um, really um, vulnerable bunnies, mm-hmm. who well, are. No, it's that you thing you're
1: representing humanity. Yeah, you you want to get it right. <laughs> you do. That's you want to get that's it right. A big it mandat- is that big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like saying it's. It, yeah, I I don't use that thing of life and death lightly. I do. I do mean that. One of the things I've found really useful is. Uh, ...strategies of um, humour around your process as well. Mm. Acknowledging, like identifying moments where you get to an extreme... ...and actually building in ways of laughing at it. I mean, I just have got this little phrase which is... ...I was a very competitive young child. (laughs) And I said to to someone, oh no, I'm not really competitive. And they fell over laughing. And I was like, (laughs) what are you talking about? (laughs) I think I chose theatre because you can't win theatre. (laughs) You can't. (laughs) It's funny. You kind of go... and, And that's... You just can't. It will defeat you every time. The imperfection of it, the changeability of it, even when everything is running on rails in the most contracted of shows, there's still this little spirit that moves through it that will be different each night and you can't control that. And it's... I think that's why I do it is because... I hated the version of myself that was evolving in an industry where you could win, where it was measurable and you could win. I was becoming a terrible person. And so I think I re-chose theatre just because I can't win and it defeats me all the time and there's compromise, which I hate, and there's things going wrong, which I hate, and I hate the loss of control, and I really hate theatre for all of that stuff, but it's this thing that keeps me human as opposed to being an awful human.
3: So one of the things that um, Griffin Theatre um, has is a very uh, clear note on um, the website and in the foyer that if you um, um, struggle with um, a mental health condition or are worried about um, triggers that um, you can chat to box office, you can call in, you can talk to the ushers, all of whom have been... um, um, trained, and you know they they have uh, they have processes in um in place, um, so that that audience member um is not prevented from experiencing this experiencing this play. They just um it's allowing them to make an informed decision um, about whether or not to to come to it. Um, and I think that's uh I think that's really really important. I don't think that um we should um, steer away from difficult topics by um, any means. Um, and I think um, a theatre maker should be uh, feel uh, safe and free to um, create work that explores contentious and complex topics. And there will always be people in the audience who are unhappy with that representation of mental health on stage. But um, again, it's... Um, giving a bit of the power back to that audience member that they can uh, make their own decision about whether or not to go.
1: And again, it's things we're talking about that we didn't talk about in running theatres 20 years ago.
2: Yeah, it was also really important for me as an actor who has friends who have have dealt with some of the issues that Anna deals with, that it wasn't a sort of sensationalist depiction of that, that that fit into stereotypes. Thankfully, the writing serves that purpose a lot and Kendall's research and empathy... Um, for the people who are experiencing this gave me a very great place to sit in with that um it's it's hard it would be hard to depict Anna in in a way that does do that but one part of my process was actually talking to friends who have lived through uh, mental illness and uh through medication in v- from a young age in some circumstances and and actually a friend of mine read the play and so I could talk about very specific things in the play and make sure that there were corners that I I I was not cutting um with with the representation and it's been really wonderful getting feedback from audiences um, who have really noticed that in the play that it, it that it was it, it is a, it, a very realistic and complex and nuanced representation rather than a simplification or 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 using the the mental illness as I guess entertainment rather than as a, a, an empathy access point
0: To purchase tickets to The Almighty Sometimes, currently playing at Griffin Theatre Company, head to griffintheatre.com.au. For more theatre podcasts and stories, head to the Prop website at www.the-prop.com.au.